I'm at the Cape Cod Symposium on Addictive Disorders. This is the 32nd annual CCSAD hosted by C4 Events. This is where I get my hands on the experts and the professionals in the field of addiction and mental health disorders. So you can have more help, more support, more connection to the information that is going to bring your family back from the brink of destruction, from these destructive habits, these destructive patterns. I'm Aaron Huey. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. There's still a lot of theories about addiction that go around and that we don't, it, it, the experts don't really argue about it because we accept them all. And, and that's what I really love about being in the industry is that when someone who's gone through the rooms and calls, you know, addiction, a disease, and someone else calls it uh, just a genetic issue and someone, someone else says, this is about trauma. Um, this is, this is not something that we actually get on each other's case. Okay. Every now and then people can disagree and they can bicker about the facts and stuff like that around it, but it's not something that keeps us apart as professionals about what the root cause is. Because at the end of the day, there is a golden thread that lays within recovery that my next guest, when I, when I was asking him, what is his passion and what is the show going to be about? What he said is the absolute, in my professional opinion, take it for what it's worth, folks, disease, genetics, trauma, I understand what saved my life the day I got sober. And I'll talk about that in a minute. My guest is Dr. Mike McGee. Dr. Mike, please, as we get started, before we talk about the topic of the show, please talk about your credentials, where you're working, how you ended up in this industry of mental health and recovery. Okay, sure. Um, so I work as the chief medical officer at a psychiatric addictions treatment facility called The Haven near San Luis Obispo in California, about halfway between San Francisco and L.A. on the Central Coast. Uh, I've been there for a few years, and I've been an addiction psychiatrist for about 30 years, uh, trained at Stanford and Harvard. And I have a, a book that I've written on recovery called The Joy of Recovery, uh, that is a comprehensive approach towards healing from addiction. And I have another book, which is just coming out now, uh, come, called 101 Things You Need to Know If You're Addicted to Painkillers. So that'll be a more, a more specialized book on the whole process of recovery uh, for people who uh, suffer from addiction to opioids. So parents listening across from me, when I talk about I come to these conferences and I get to be the dumbest person in the room, nay, the stupidest man in the hotel. What I have across from me is these, this big brain, Stanford, Harvard, uh, a doctor in addiction psychiatry, uh, author of multiple books. This is what I'm talking about. And when he told me what he thinks addiction is, it didn't just hit home because I agree. It hit home because it's the one thing I know to be true about me as an addict in recovery, 22 years deep, and what it is that I found that I had to offer, truly offer, more than knowledge, more than skill. Um, so I'm going to get his answer just by asking, Dr. Mike, what is addiction? So I see addiction as a love deficit disorder. I see it as a deficit in our capacity to safely and effectively love and be loved. 
And by, by love, I really define that as an experience of reverence for ourselves and for all of life, followed by the capacity to nurture life, to nurture our life and the lives of others. And if you look at people who suffer from addiction, I see addiction really at the cause of addiction for most people. It, it, it's different for everybody, but the root cause of, of addiction for most people is a broken heart. I can, uh, my experience of that was that I have never met my biological father. I had a great dad. He was an amazing daddy. My mom was awesome, progressive, um, communicative. My dad was affectionate. I never met my father. And so that broken heart started very, very young. Right. Um, but he was also an alcoholic who died from his addiction uh, after years of, of liver still failed, regardless of, of his path. Um, so again, it brings in the thread of genetics and all this type of stuff. But what I knew to be true was that he didn't love me and I lived with that, that pain. Right. So the broken heart, does that, is that insinuating that you've, quite frankly, every addict somewhere along the way has an unresolved broken heart? I think so. I, th I think that we all are wounded. And if we have the genetic vulnerability for managing our pain, our woundedness, uh, through falling into the trap of addiction, then we will. But, you know, we all suffer from, from, from woundedness in some degrees. I think there's three forms of woundedness that break our heart. Uh, one is the, the woundedness of, of trauma, developmental trauma and neglect, uh, which are profound. And, and we're actually seeing an increase in in rates of, 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 of neglect and, and disconnection. Uh, I think the second form of woundedness is just a spiritual woundedness that we're born with, and I call that the woundedness of the ego. And the ego is a great thing. It's allowed us to create a civilization, but the ego causes us to be separate from other people, and it creates a disconnection uh, from us, from other people, from our oneness with, with, with everybody and with all that is. It's a spiritual woundedness that we're all born with, and that we have to compensate through our spirituality to overcome. And then the third form of woundedness is really a, a, a societal woundedness. Uh, we live in a very, I think, wounding society uh, that's, that's really, um, fra uh, there's a fragmentation of meaning, a fragmentation of purpose, a fragmentation of method, and a fragmentation of belonging. Uh, it's very different than it was 2,000 years ago uh, in Greece, in ancient Greece, for example when the people that you lived with and you worked with were all the same and you, you had the sense of tribal community that you belonged to. So there's multiple forms of woundedness. And, and addiction is kind of like pain management gone awry. It's really this idea that, um, that we fall into, we all want to feel good and not feel bad. And so for, for teens who are, are growing in a vulnerable time into, into adulthood, their brains are, are designed for, to, to want to experience great pleasure and to not experience plain, pain. And if there's a behavior or a substance that can give immediate gratification or, or relief for them because of their woundedness, because of their pain, they will go to this compulsive good now, bad later behavior because really of a lack of love. Um, I, I see that you know, if, if somebody truly loved themselves, completely and thoroughly, they would never do anything to hurt themselves. And, and it's really that, that, that sort of, that, that, that inability to sort of figure out loving ways to manage pain that don't cause harm 
that I think uh, that really caused people to fall into the trap of addiction. You've been in um, you you've been in the 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 knowledgeable facet of addiction and recovery for so long now. I imagine you know you know very well the the steps in AA and NA. Does the Haven use the the twelve steps? Right. So the Haven takes sort of a, a um, a, a, an individualized approach. Okay. And and by that, we expose people to all the different pathways for recovery. Right. Okay. Uh, smart recovery, refuge recovery. Smart is very working uh, very well. Right. 12-step approach. And, and, and what I actually encourage people is to have an open mind and to explore all of them and see if they can create a customized and integrated uh, sort of a customized approach to their own recovery. We have patients who go to both smart recovery and the 12 step meetings, <laughs> you know. Uh, Joining and, both sides of the battle. Right, and, and get different needs met uh, through different perspectives. So my question is this about A specifically, because that, that was a personal experience of mine. Um, do you see, based on, on your perception of, of, of this wounding um, and this love deficit, do you see the success of AA come primarily from the step work or primarily from the community experience? The answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Absolutely. Okay. You know, if you look at the literature, AA works for people who work it. That's true. And that's, it's one of the sayings. But there's, there's, a, there's a last piece of that statement that, that helps to heal that wound. Yes. It works if you work it and you're worth it. Yes. And that, that piece. And that's the love part. Yes. I think that, you know, spiritually, uh, if we can have, if we can go through the AA process and feel the fellowship and love, it's so important to heal that woundedness to do six different things uh, that, that, that children, adolescents need to be able to heal their, their, their woundedness to their, to their love. Uh, and and the first is really to in, get into a safe environment where they're not hurting themselves anymore. And if that takes a residential treatment program, whatever it takes so that they're not being harmed is so important. But the next step is to really uh, uh, expose people to loving people who can love them safely and, we're, and help them to have the courage uh, and trust to be able to open up to being loved. It's so, so important. We talk about this technically in psychiatry about addiction as an attachment disorder. Uh, and I like to use the word addiction as a love deficit disorder instead of an attachment disorder because it more speaks directly to, to the nature of the problem. So really, AA is a way of, of creating a, a fellowship in a community where you can go and if, if, you have, if you're skillful about it, Expose yourself to a sponsor. Expose yourself to some recovery supports who are loving people and, and allow yourself to experience their love. I think that's so important. But then if you look at the literature, that, that exposure to that uh, and that exposure to spiritual practices, uh, get, uh, getting up and meditating or praying when, when you get up and when you go to bed at night, right. uh, those kinds of experiences uh, of stillness, I think, uh, create this capacity to experience a reverence for oneself and for life through the experience of stillness uh, that, that's encouraged in AA. And then that leads to increased capacity to cope positively with problems through a collaborative problem-solving style. It, AA helps people with, to, with enhanced self-efficacy, a feeling that they're no longer helpless victims, that they, that they can actually have some control over managing what is oftentimes an uncontrollable situation in life. They have increased motivation for abstinence because of going to AA. They have increased a social network of loving people 
through the participation in AA, and from that increased intimacy and connection. Again, these are all aspects of loving, and so that's really important that, that AA facilitates these psychosocial determinants of recovery. Because I don't know about the SMART, uh, uh, the program, only that it is showing a lot of success, people like it, a lot mm -hmm. of treatment facilities are using yeah. it. Is everything you just said about AA also applicable to that? Does it fulfill all those needs as well? No, I think it's a little bit different because in SMART, you don't have a recovery mentor and, and you don't necessarily have a focus on a higher power or what I like to call a greater power. Greater power. I think it's more implicit in SMART Whereas in AA, it's more explicit yeah. to sort of look for a power greater than yourself, whether it be the fellowship or the group or right. friends or family or whatever. Right. But in SMART, it's more implicit. Like the greater power is in the group and it's in the methodology and it's in the, it's in the practice of these cognitive behavioral skills that help people. So it's all the same, but it's just packaged differently. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So now let's let's. I want to move. I want to move to parenting for a second because, and I've even had guests this weekend where they they say things like, "I love my daughter. I hate my daughter, and my brain can't marry those two things." Now this is a daughter who's so strung out on heroin and, and has been involved in prostitution and has stolen from the family and betrayed every family member and has been running the household into the ground for the past 15, 10, five years that everybody's life are revolving around this person who's completely out of control, spiteful, hateful, angry, violent. And we're saying now, love's the answer. Yes, well, here's the confusion. The confusion is that love is not a feeling. Love is not a feeling. Yeah, I am confused. Please yeah, explain. Love that. is not a feeling. Well, for example, let's say that your your son, you know, um, throws a temper tantrum and throws his dinner on the floor and kicks and screams and punches a hole in the wall. Are you going to kick him out the door and, because you're angry at him and say, "Go find a new family"? No, you're not going to do that. And if people suffering from addiction, even though you're angry with them and feel hateful towards them, you still love them. And what I mean by love. Is, it's an attitude of reverence which inspires action to, in, to nurture other people, to enhance their lives. So it's the difference between a feeling and an attitude. An attitude is deeper than feelings. You have it, this underlying, consistent, unchanging attitude of reverence for somebody, even if you can't stand them or feel tremendous anger towards them in the moment, that attitude of reverence is constant. And because of that attitude of reverence, you're inspired to act in loving ways. Look, it's really easy to love if you feel loving, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But tell me, is it not hard to enhance the well-being of somebody when you don't like them? Yeah. And me as a therapist, I mean, I work at a prison hospital. I, I work with people who have murdered and who have raped and who have um, you know, abused little children and, and who have done horrible things. Um, and it's my job to love them. It's not that I have to like them. It's not that I have to respect them. Res uh, well, to to respect their behavior. Right, right, right. But on but but really, it's my job to have a profound reverence and respect for them as beings, as living beings, and and as living beings, it's my job to enhance their well-being regardless of how I feel about them. So this is what I mean about love not being wow. a fe feeling, if that makes sense to you. It does now. Yeah. So when you are angry at somebody who's in the midst of addiction, 
I think that the way to, that's a separate issue. How do you deal with your anger? And we can, we can talk about how to manage those negative, destructive, or toxic emotions. Obviously, having a deep understanding, which breeds uh, compassion, which then breeds forgiveness. I think that understanding, compassion, forgiveness is so important. But then you have to do what you can do to love them. So it could be setting limits. It could be creating a safe environment for them. It could be providing positive abundant rewards for pro-recovery behaviors, removing those rewards when they engage in addiction behaviors, simple contingent reinforcement, cognitive behavioral type of, of, of behavioral approaches combined with loving kindness, I think is so important. The, the, the piece that, that I want to speak to is that, you know, what, what I knew what started, you know, hindsight knowing that what started so much was not feeling the love of a biological father, mm -hmm. um, being bullied, separated, you know, singled out from a tribe, mm -hmm. um, and self-loathing that came from from yes. these two things. Yes, it ending up in addiction where the yes. shame and the shame and guilt spiral right. fed me down. Right. On my day of sobriety, within 24 hours. I experienced unconditional love from three different sources, all of them being male, a divine source, a, uh, a stranger. When I called the triangle club, when I called AA and said, do you have meetings? And they said, where are you? I'll come get you. And I said, no, 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 don't do that. And he said, it's okay. I love you. And, and, and then the third was from my dad who, when I told them later the next morning that I was an addict and I was going to start going to meetings, he said, whatever you whatever you need, I'll do because I love you. And that, you know, that this was a man who's not my father, but a man who um, raised me, who nurtured me, who loved me, who took me to my hockey games, who watched me abuse the family in the ways that I did still had that space for me. That that idea of being worth something yeah. suddenly was the catalyst for now 22 years of healing to pass on this, that it was love. It was love. It was the lack of feeling loved in the beginning yes, right. and feeling loved at the end. And right. so how much responsibility do parents bear when all they have done is I said, I love you and the kid's still shooting up or I love you and the kid's still carving themselves up with a razor blade and burning themselves or I love you and you just like... You, how does love get through to someone who hates themselves? Right, right. So I, again, I think that that um, that it's so important. Uh, love is an action. It, it, it's not, as I said, it's not a feeling. And so uh, sometimes uh, helping people uh, to develop this this sense of wholeness and reverence, it really requires, um, like I said, creating a safe environment for them. And then, and then putting them in an environment where they can be loved, where they can feel the love that you experienced when you first got into recovery, and then encouraging um, good self-care, really encouraging good self-care. And then again, um, uh, really providing them with opportunities to experience belonging and connection to other people. And, and oftentimes, I, like in your treatment facility, I'm sure that it's so important that we be loving and, and really treat our patients with profound, unconditional reverence and respect. And if you look, if you have a treatment staff who have that capacity to do that, that can make all the difference in the world for, for patients in terms of, of their ability to successfully 
enter into recovery. So your your concept of, of loving actions for someone who's who's been so desperately violent or brutal mm-hmm. towards another human being, truly, my, my belief has always been that violence is a result of disconnect, you mm-hmm. know, because we, yeah. you and I could be in conflict about politics or religion, mm-hmm. but we're still in relationship, right? Right. right. It's that when yes. it turns violent that the relationship is shattered. Disconnection. Yeah. Because right. it's, right. it's, it's separation that causes our pain. Right. Okay. Right. So you're, you're with these, with these, the criminal element that has been so desperately separated and has mm-hmm. actively separated themselves from others through violent action. Mm-hmm. Your loving actions are offering them opportunities to heal, offering them opportunities right. to speak their truth without judgment, offering what a therapist's job is to do. Right. Am, am I on track? Here? Absolutely. But also limits and containment. And, and consequences, uh, limits, course. containment, and consequences are very loving. Sometimes the most loving thing that you can do for somebody is to uh, allow them to experience the natural negative consequences of their behavior. Not your emotional consequence, but the natural consequence of their behavior. Right. I think pain is probably the greatest transform- transformative uh, power of transformation and growth for people. And you do not want to shield your child, children from the pain, uh, the, the painful consequences of their behavior. You know, the, this is this is something that I heard relatively recently have have said it a few times, but it's landing so hard now is that when we say to parents, boundaries are an offer of healthy relationship. Yes. Like we set our yes. boundaries right. so I can be in relationship with you. You cannot love without boundaries. Right. Love requires boundaries. So parents have to set boundaries. Absolutely, boundaries and, and limits and consequences. And consequences, both both uh, positive consequences for positive behavior, but also allowing the natural negative, painful consequences of unskillful behavior. Okay, Doc, we're we're wow, this is at our this is at our time. Um, how how first of all, I, I want you to talk about the books again, but then if people want to get in direct contact with you. Sure. Can they? Do you do private clients? Do you t- do tell? Okay. So, yeah. so please, all contact information. Sure. So, uh, my website is drmichaelmcgee.com, drmichaelmcgee, M-C-G-E-E dot com. I can also be reached at thejoyofrecovery.com or at wellmind.com, wellmind like a happy brain. Any of those ways I can be reached. Uh, my email is mdm at wellmind.com. Uh, I would welcome people to email me if they have any questions or or anything, if I can be of help in any way to them. Uh, I can also be reached at The Haven, uh, and so I can be reached with that. My book, The Joy of Recovery, uh, you can find on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. And um, so if, if you do happen to get that book, I would appreciate a review. I would, I'm, I'm abs- expect a review to show up on, uh, on Amazon from me. Uh, this has been, this has been one of those times where I, I feel lighter than I did 20 minutes ago. And, oh, and I, I appreciate your delivery. I appreciate your, your, just the utter confidence in this is it's, it's, palpable is that the right mm. word <laughs> yeah it's palpable right yeah doc thank yeah. you so much for being um, on beyond risk and back and sharing your wisdom with my family oh thank you my pleasure okay this has been another episode of beyond risk and back 
Thank you so much, parents, for making Beyond Wrist and Back a number one parenting podcast. I'd like to thank CCSAD for their support and the opportunity to interview all of these amazing guests for this series. If you have seen Beyond Risk and Back on any of the five major social media sites, you can thank Your Cause Consulting. Your Cause Consulting specializes in marketing companies that have something going on bigger than just running their business. They have a cause. If you'd like to contact Your Cause Consulting, go to yourcauseconsulting at gmail.com. All the sound and the music was engineered and created by Deepin Productions. To reach Deepin Productions, go to deepinproductions at gmail.com. D-E-E-P-E-N productions at gmail.com. This is Aaron Huey. Parents, remember to take care of yourselves first, your adult relationships second, and your children third. In that way, we do our best work with our children. We'll talk again soon.